0: Thank you, Rhys. A very good morning to you. Uh, Thank you for inviting me along to to, uh, open up God's Word with you this morning. One of the delights, I think, of just being here even briefly this morning is uh, seeing the connections and the delight that you have um, as we pray and commit and think about mission. Uh, Already hearing about Misha and Carl, here are people from you who know you, who uh, you love and have a connection with, and God is using them in various situations uh, around the world. Uh, Just even on that African Enterprise video, I was delighted to see Carolyn and David Stedman, two people there who grew up, or I grew up, a few doors down from them in Sydney. I'm friends with their kids, and just hearing about what God is doing through them to bless others. Uh, Hong Kong is sometimes a bit of an outsourcing society. You know, we just give other people um, the job to do sometimes what we could be doing anyway. I'm really delighted to see that Sha Tin is not an outsourcing church. Uh, You guys are getting involved and and through God, let's pray that that continues. Uh, Let me pray as we begin. Lord God, since without you, we are unable even to please you. Guide the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Enable us to understand your word and to apply it to our lives. These things we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Um, Here's a question for you. What do you do when it seems like God is not around? Or to be even a little bit more specific, if you're a Christian, how do you live according to your beliefs when it seems like no one else around you in your society believes what you do. Um, I read an article a little while back by a fellow called A.N. Wilson. He's a very famous uh, literary critic and novelist in the UK. And uh, he lived a lot of his life as an atheist before, a few years ago, becoming a Christian. But this is what he writes about why he became an atheist in the first place. Why did I, along with so many others, become so dismissive of Christianity? Like most educated people in Britain, I have grown up in a culture that is overwhelmingly secular and anti-religious. The universities, broadcasters and media generally are not merely non-religious, they're positively anti. To my shame, it was this that made me lose faith and heart in my youth. It felt so uncool to be religious. With the mentality of a child in the playground, I felt at some visceral level that being religious was unsexy, like having spots or spectacles. Apologies to those who have spectacles here. Uh, Now, here is a guy who turned away from religious belief because of the hostility of his society towards Christianity. Now, granted, Hong Kong is a a different place to the UK, perhaps probably more sympathetic to spiritual things, but this is still largely a secular environment. Secularism is that philosophy where God doesn't have a big part of life. Uh, He's not really part of our daily life. Uh, He's not relevant to the workplace, how we do business, uh, or our social interactions. If God is relevant at all, he's just relevant in our private life. That, that's secularism. So back to my original question, what do you do when it seems like God is not around? How do you live your life in a society that at best views God as irrelevant and at worst there's outright hostility towards him? Well, that's what we want to think about for a few moments as we think about Daniel and his three friends in this first chapter of the book of Daniel. Because even though, this is a, um, even though this is a very old book and written to a different culture and a different time, it is particularly relevant for us if we want to know not just how to follow Christ but to proclaim Christ and model Christ in the situation that God has put us in. Uh, You can see in your outline there's three points this morning. First of all, the clash of kingdoms. Secondly, following the king. And thirdly, the the God who rules. So keep your Bibles open. And uh, in the first two verses of this passage, we can see a clash of kingdoms is described. Let me read it again. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So what's happening? The third year of King Jehoiakim, we know, is about 605 BC. Uh, Babylon is the preeminent power in the region. That's the, they're the superpower. And like they've done with many other countries... They've come and conquered Jerusalem. They've surrounded Jerusalem and besieged it and defeated it. And the big question for the Israelites is what do we do now? Is our God still alive? Is our God with us? Has our God been defeated? What do we do now? Because essentially, what the Babylonians were declaring was that God, their God, had died. That's what they were declaring when they took the religious articles out of the temple of God in Jerusalem and transported them to Babylonia and put them in the temple of their own gods. A lot of the Israelites are saying, what do we do now? Our our city is conquered, our temple is plundered, is God still in control? And the Babylonians are saying, Yes, you guys are done. Your God is done. Not only has our country defeated your country, our gods have defeated your gods. Give up. Forget your old way of life. Forget your God. Now, how do we know that? Well, have a look at verses 3 to 7. Uh, Babylonia have gone in and, and they've conquered Jerusalem. And like many other countries uh, that they do, what they do is they deport the, the professional classes. Uh, they take away back to their own country the scholars and the professionals, the, the people who work in government, the young and the bright and the capable. Why? Well, it's a strategy. And the strategy is subjugation through assimilation. When you defeat another country to keep that country compliant, uh, you take the professional classes, you take the best, you make them live in Babylon, and for, for a gener- after a generation or two, they assimilate. They will adopt the standards and values. They'll forget about the standards and values of their own country, and they'll stop resisting the Babylonian Empire. They'll assimilate. Okay, confession time. I'm not actually Australian. Now, a lot of you will be thinking, hang on, hang on, hang on, where does that sophisticated and cultured accent come from? How can you not be Australian? Well, truth be told, and I like to keep it quiet, I'm American. Okay, I was born in the States, secret, just amongst us. I was born in the States and I have a US passport. And uh, I don't feel American. I have a strong patriotism, a strong sense of allegiance to Australia. After all, that's the country where I largely grew up in. I, I married an Australian. My kids are Australian. I love the sport and the food and the culture. Yes, there is culture in Australia. And um, <laughs> even though I, I, all this means I'm Australian, I, I, I was born in the States, I'm Australian. I feel Austral- I'm assimilated. Now, I know a lot of you know what I'm talking about. Because the same thing has happened to you. A lot of you look Chinese. And that might mean that, yeah, you know how to play violin and piano, you know how to speak Cantonese, you like dim sum and and all that type of stuff, but chances are you've spent a lot of your time living outside of Hong Kong. You've you lived abroad, been educated abroad, worked abroad. You might feel an affiliation with Hong Kong, but you also feel Canadian or New Zealander or Australian or English or, or even maybe American. And <laughs> you've been assimilated. Well, lots of us are in that situation. Now, that's what the Babylonians want Daniel and his three friends to feel. They want these Jewish people to feel... Babylonian, to get them to forget about their own way of life, their old gods. And so what do they do? They give them a Babylonian education to win their minds. And so the best are picked and put into the, the king's university and they're taught the language and literature of the Babylonians. They're taught the culture and religious practices even of the Babylonians. All this to win their minds. But then also they're given preferment to win their hearts. They're given the best school, the best clothes. Uh, They're they're, they're put amongst the elite. They're in the king's court. They have every opportunity for advancement and position, uh, a promotion, a wonderful career, good paychecks, a nice life. Just forget about the past. Forget about your gods. But they're also given new identities. Did you see that? that Daniel and his three friends were given new names. In verse 7, the chief officials gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. In a culture, the Jewish culture, where names were so important, where names describe to a certain extent who you are and who you belong to, Here are Daniel and his friends. They had names that spoke about God's grace and power and sovereignty, but the Babylonians take away those names and give them new names that have attachment to Babylonian gods. So that's the policy. That's the policy, subjugation through assimilation. In every way, these guys were encouraged and pressured even to forget their gods. Now... Whilst the methods might not be so obvious in the society we live in, all the time we are encouraged to forget God, to consider God irrelevant to how we live our lives. You don't need to believe in God because we know now how the world was put together. We have the science and technology. We, we have the ability now to solve the world's problems. You don't need God. Why, why talk about sin? Why talk about your need for God? Why? That's such an outdated way of thinking. Isn't it more important to be honest with yourselves and to, and to act nicely to other people? Or All the time in our society, we, we push God to the margins. How can you be indoctrinated by religion? That's such an outdated thing. But here's the thing. You will always be indoctrinated by something. You will always be told by someone how to think, how to live, how to behave, how to speak, what to buy, how to live your lives. We are always being indoctrinated somehow. We're always being assimilated, either through education or preferment or even being given particular identities. Don't think you're immune from it. It happens to all of us, whether we know it or not. Constantly being told... Forget about God. Live this particular way of life. So, what did Daniel and his friends do? Well, this is our second point. Let's think about some options that were before them before we look at what they actually did. A guy called Richard Niebuhr uh, pointed out different options that people take when the society they're in have fundamentally different beliefs to them. Now, let me talk about four of them very quickly. And Christians have done all four of these various options. The first option is to accommodate. That's when believers give in. Uh, They adopt the surrounding culture's worldviews and values. They don't just take on the language and food and dress of the surrounding culture. They take on everything, the values and beliefs. They blend in and lose any distinct identity. That's the first thing you can do. You can accommodate. The second thing you can do is to privatise. That means you keep the external trappings of your faith. Uh, You still go to church and you say prayers, but your faith is, is kept on a Sunday and really doesn't affect the rest of your life. You adopt the fundamental values of your culture and God doesn't really shape the way you live. So whilst externally you do the Christian things, you go to church, you pray... At the core of your being, you're just as materialistic and individualistic and image conscious as as the rest of society around you. Your faith isn't displayed publicly, it's been privatised. That's the second option. The third is what's called the soldier model. Instead of giving in to the culture around you, you fight against it. You respond to the the culture around you with this sense of hostility and superiority. Um, You you don't want to be polluted by anything that's non-Christian. And so you seek to undermine it. You have an us and them mentality. we're, We're good, they're all bad. That's the soldier model. Well, what's the fourth? Let me briefly explain it. Then I'll show how Daniel and his friends follow it. This model is what you could call engagement believers engage with the culture around them, working with them, working with people who don't share their beliefs, but doing it in a way that shows their distinctiveness, that shows that they're following God and following God's values. They don't try to undermine the culture around them, they seek to understand the culture around them, but at the core of their being, they're still very different, because They have a different understanding of how to use all sorts of things, money, relationships, sexuality, and so on. They're distinctive in those particular areas. You could call these people resident aliens. They're residents in that culture, in the the culture that they live in, but they don't seek the values and the approval of that culture. That's what makes them different, like they're aliens. They show that culture an alternative way of living. Now, this is what Daniel and his friends did. How? Well, notice first that they let themselves be taken in by the Babylonians. They received the Babylonian education and the the preferment. They even receive the Babylonian names and they agree to work for the Babylonians. The prophet Jeremiah, when he was writing to the exiles who'd been sent to Babylon, he told them, settle down. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Pray for its good. Work for the good of the city. And that's what Daniel and his friends do. They don't withdraw and say, we're only going to take care of our people. No, no, no. They work for the good of the city. They spend their entire lives in the public service for that city. But here's the thing. They do make a stand. They act distinctively. Have a look with me at verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. And when this guy who's taking care of Daniel and his friend, he's, he's reluctant, Daniel says to him, Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. Now, here's the question that immediately strikes us. Why, why food? Because I can tell a lot of you are worried. Does that mean um, I have to be vegetarian in order to be faithful to God? You know, no more suyok, no more hot pot, no more all that type of stuff. I know in Hong Kong we can be really worried about food. Does that mean I have to be a vegetarian to be faithful? No, you can relax. It's all right. This is a particular issue that Daniel picks up. Why? Well, a lot of commentators are pretty divided on it. Some say that Daniel said no to the food because they didn't conform to Jewish dietary requirements. And, well, this doesn't really make sense because it's not just the food that he refuses to eat, but also the wine. And the wine wasn't against any of the kosher laws. And and, and the, the dietary requirements, the kosher laws, didn't require people to be vegetarian. Other people think that Daniel refuses to eat the food because it was sacrificed to pagan gods. But that isn't likely because, well, it's not included in the story. And also, the food that he does eat, the vegetables that he does eat, does come from the king's table. So, the option, I think, is this. For Daniel, the king's food was a temptation to go beyond just learning about the values and worldviews the, and the priorities of the Babylonians to actually adopting them. The food represented a step from learning to adopting. For Daniel, it was that line in the sand that goes from him being Jewish to being distinctly Babylonian in his outlook in life, in assimilating with them. It's like... It's like he's prepared to go to Oxford or Harvard to receive the education, but he's not prepared to go to the expensive parties, to live the expensive lifestyle, the rowing and the nice restaurants and all the apparel and all that type of stuff. He realizes he can get tempted into living in that particular lifestyle, the attraction and the idolatry, the money, the power the seduction and so forth, and pretty quickly he can turn away from living for God. He's Priorities would become the Babylonian priorities. Oh, the Babylonian priorities would become his. He would lose his distinctiveness as one of God's people. It was the line in the sand for him. Now, the text said, Daniel resolved. That means he made a deliberate decision. It wasn't spur of the moment. He decided that he would make a stance. And this is a lesson for all Christians to learn. When do you make your stands? Don't wait until you're in a position of social strength before you let people know you're actually a Christian. Otherwise, you get into a habit of continually compromising. If you've just started in your faith, work out the things that you're going to have to make a stand over. What Daniel made a stand over was the food. For us, it might be something else. But the Bible consistently says that if we're going to be faithful to God... It's exercising faith in the small things of life, in the private things of life very often, in our own personal Bible reading and prayer, or what you do with your money, what you do when no one else knows what you're doing. Because if you fail there, then you will fail publicly and we'll just be living a lie. So this is the balance that we need to have we need to engage with the people and the culture around us. We don't withdraw into our holy huddle, but we work for the good of the city that God has put us in. That means taking up opportunities to get involved in mission and social justice. We've heard just briefly here, and you can see around you, all these different organisations that are involved in mission and social justice, mercy ministries, seeking the good of the city. You get involved, you work for the good of those around us, but at the very same time, like Daniel, you do not compromise on your faith. You're very conscious of which king you're serving. All right, third point. We see here that even though Daniel and his friends are living in a land hostile to belief in their God, their God still rules. Did you notice that three times in this chapter, the author said that God was responsible for particular actions? In other words, God is still in control. At the very beginning of the chapter, we hear that Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem. That's the viewpoint of history. But what does the narrator say? Verse 2, that the Lord delivered Jehoiakim into his hands. Nebuchadnezzar was the means... But Israel's defeat was God's doing. Why? Well, we know because Israel had broken God's covenant over and over and over again, and the limit of God's patience has been reached. And so God uses nations. That subtle phrase at the very beginning of the chapter reminds us that God is in control of the nations, even a nation as mighty as Babylon. That's at the beginning of the chapter. But if you go all the way to the end... You can see this verse, and Daniel remained there to the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. At the beginning and the end, what's going on here? God's guy is still there. King Cyrus, he's a Persian, the Babylonians aren't around, but God's guy is still around. You see, God is in control of the nations, but not just that. Have a look at verse 9, God is in control of people. It says God caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. And then further down in verse 17, to these young men God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning to the point where when the king questions them, he finds them 10 times better than his own people. God enabled these guys not to just survive but to thrive. And he uses them in their faithfulness not just to show that he's in charge, but to bless the people in that city. He uses Daniel and his friends to bless those around them. Now, this is often the point of confusion for us because we hear the call to be distinctive. Don't give up on your faith. Make a stand. We hear that in our workplace and around our friends and family, not to completely assimilate, to not take on the values and priorities of a culture that is against God. But then we figure out, well, what does it actually mean? What does it look like for us to be distinctive and to be a blessing to others? How do we do that? And this is the perennial challenge for us. I remember hearing this sermon from Dick Lucas from St. Helens in London, and he was actually preaching on Joseph, but I think it's applicable to Daniel as well. He said this, If you were to go to a bookstall and see a biography with a title, the man God uses or the woman God uses, you would immediately assume it's a story of a missionary or a minister, would you not? Or a pastor or evangelist or someone who leads Bible studies at least. But what you have in the story of Joseph or in the story of Daniel in our case is a highly successful leader. He's not a minister, he's not a missionary. In the long term, this is still Dick Lucas, he says, I think being a preacher or a minister or a missionary, or leading a Bible study group, in in many ways is a lot easier. There's a certain spiritual glamour in doing it. And what we do each day is easier to discern what we should be doing. It's more black and white, not so grey. So it's often hard to get Christians to see that God is willing, not just to use men and women in ministry, but also in law and medicine and the arts and in business. That is the great challenge today. Now, we're talking about missions this morning, right? And one of the things that we have to realise is that God uses us wherever we are. We've just been reading about the story of Daniel and his three friends, guys who aren't prophets, they're not ministers, they're working in the king's court, they're working in a secular organisation. You could read the same with Esther and Joseph and Nehemiah. Here are people involved in secular work. God uses us and he gives us all opportunities that are unique. No one else has a unique combination of skills, personalities, uh, education, employment, relationships. No one else has the unique combination of resources and opportunities that you have in your particular situation. And God will use us. And so he calls on us to to resolve, to make a stand. Not just to resolve and make a stand about being distinctly Christian, but to resolve, to make a stand, to, to use what God has given you, the opportunities, the relationships, the resources that God has given you in your particular situation, to resolve and make a stand. Listen, God's not distant and removed in this entire process. God himself... Got involved. You see, like Daniel, Jesus left his home far away. And like Daniel, he didn't just risk his life because Daniel risked his life. Jesus did more. He risked his life to be obedient. He gave his life to be obedient to God. He gave his life for us, serving us for our good so that we would no longer be exiles but we would be given a home with God. God gets involved and he calls us to get involved using the opportunities and the resources that he's given us so that we can declare his wonderful message to those around us. Okay, let me pray. Lord God, thank you for this lesson from this old, old story in the book of Daniel about men who stood up who sought to be distinctive and to obey you. Here were men who sought to care and to seek the good for those around us. Lord, help us to hear and follow their lesson. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. Equip us and direct us so that we might not just be distinctive, but use all the resources that you've given us to declare the praises of your glory. Lord, guide us and strengthen us in this task. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.